I'm Sienna. I'm the kid. I'm Sarah. I'm the mom. This is Queer Kids Straight Mom. Let's talk. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Queer Kids Straight Mom. Today we are talking about queer trauma in period films, inspired by the new movie on Amazon Prime, starring Harry Styles, who, as you know, if you've listened to our first episode, I have complicated feelings about, called My Policeman. It is a period film set in 1950s England, and it's, yeah, it's it's about a gay policeman. Are we going to talk about that so one let's first? let's get started. <laughs> we can talk about that one first. All right. So... I liked, didn't love this movie. I thought it was entertaining and I thought the cast did a great job. Even Harry Styles, I thought acted well. A big question that I have about this movie actually is related to something we're going to talk about in one of our other movies. So we're going to have to circle back to that, I think. But overall, I guess my takeaways were just like, this was pretty typical gay trauma situation where especially from a movie from a previous time where a character who is gay is forced to live this secret life and under fear of the repercussions, which we actually see happen to some other people in the film. And it did have, I guess, an uplifting ending. So that sets it apart in one way, maybe sort of a sort of bittersweet, happy ending kind of. But anyway, I don't know. What are your thoughts, Sienna? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, to me, it felt like it was still sort of a repeat of this formula of gay man has internalized homophobia and therefore destroys every meaningful relationship in his life. And yeah, like you said, is forced to hide and secrecy and his boyfriend gets beat up and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, to me... It feels like that is a story that has been told over and over and over and over again. And so my biggest issue with this movie, I guess, was just that it didn't feel like it was doing anything. Well, it wasn't doing anything new, but it was also just it was repeating this sort of tired, tragic story that everyone's seen before. And it wasn't really bringing anything new, in my opinion. Yeah. And the the long-suffering girlfriend slash fiancé slash wife that's in all of these stories who we've touched on this in conversations before, but like feels a little bit to me like filmmakers still need to support the attractiveness of the main character by showing that women find him attractive. Right. And to frame it in terms of heterosexuality and its relevance to heterosexuality, like this can't be a meaningful story without it hurting a poor little straight girl. I don't remember if I've talked about this on this podcast or not, but last year we watched the movie The Power of the Dog, which, as y'all remember, was nominated a lot and won a lot, won Best Directing, which, by the way, it it was directed by, a, as far as we know, straight woman who also decided to make some really obnoxious remarks about Serena and Venus Williams. Jane Campion. Yes, Jane was Campion. The director. Yeah. I did think it was beautifully directed. I'm just going to like throw that in there. Like it was beautifully filmed and beautiful. Yeah, it was it, it was a gorgeous movie and I think this is something that's going to come up a lot in this discussion actually is that you can have an artistically well-crafted movie that is still deeply problematic and harmful and I think in this case I found it incredibly frustrating that this movie is sort of 
ostensibly like, oh, this poor guy was abused by his mentor. And so now he's turned into an abusive man. But again, it's all framed in relation to this poor straight lady who has to deal with his abusiveness and it ruins her marriage and drives her crazy and turns her son into a murderer. And it's all framed in terms of the impact of homophobia on straight people, which is like, what? You're not the victim here. It's one of these things. It's a little bit like, yes, sexism has negative impacts on men. And it's certainly worth talking about. But also men are not the victim of sexism. It's the same thing, right? Yeah. And the um, it's such a tricky, we've talked about this a little bit too. It's really tricky when you have a gay villain because mm-hmm. obviously his experiences are affecting his behavior and it's tragic. But at the same time, he's basically like grooming this woman's son, which... Mm-hmm. Then you're seeing, even though he's a villain and we know even if a tragic villain, we know he's a villain that his behavior is supposed to be bad. You're still portraying this thing on screen that a lot of people say, see, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. And it's just it feels like dangerous territory. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, to me, that's part of why it's so very and and I talked about this before on here about how I'm always very cautious to be like. Straight people can't do that because it gets it gets into that queer baiting territory really quickly. And it's just kind of icky. But and this is, again, something that we're going to talk about a bit later. At a certain point, when you're telling a story that is so closely tied to the abuse and allegations that queer men specifically endure, at a certain point, it's not really your place to tell that story, especially when, A, it's going to reinforce those stereotypes. And B, again, you're going to turn it into, oh, this poor straight lady. Look at me. I'm the one with problems here. Yeah. So my policeman had a similar storyline of how this is hurting a woman, a straight woman. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I mean, it honestly almost felt like the movie was more about her. And like, it felt like she had more of a character arc than either of the queer men. Yeah. I could see that. Interesting. Just in particular, I didn't feel like there was sort of an attempt at a character arc for Harry Styles' character, but it wasn't super coherent to me. I felt like it was like, okay, so cool. This thing made him angry and and now he's still angry, you know, 20 years later or whatever it is. And and now he's less angry? Quest- okay, okay. Right? Like, it was sort of muddled, whereas it seemed like the real emotional core of the story and the real arc of the story was about this straight woman. How it affected her. Yeah, I mean, especially because a lot of it was flashbacks. And because she was reading the one character's journal, it really was told through her eyes. Yeah, like the flashbacks to even the parts of the two men's relationship that she wasn't there for in the moment, those were all seen through the lens of her reading the journal. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's worth, I don't know. Is it worth a watch? What do we think? If only because selfishly, I want to see what other people think of it. All right. There it is. (laughs) Watch it. Tell us what you thought of it. Let's talk about The Handmaiden next, only because it's the one that I have the question that I want to tie back to my policeman. So The Handmaiden, which is also a beautifully filmed movie. It's a Korean movie based on a Welsh novel by Sarah Waters, which is called The Fingersmith. It's been phenomenally reviewed by like every source that you love and respect. And I actually (laughs) 
found it traumatic, ironically, because I think of all of the films we're going to talk about, it had the least actual gay trauma, but a whole lot of other trauma. Yeah, it's an interesting one where I think it's still queer trauma, but in a kind of weird, twisted, abstracted way. The trauma, I thought, had less to do with gayness and more to do with the ickiness of the men involved. But we both, I think, came away feeling like that made it even more jarring that the visuals of this movie seemed to be indulging that ickiness under the pretense of condemning it. Right. It was absolutely perplexing that, I mean, one of the things that I, and this is another thing, this is another comparison between my policeman and the handmaiden that we came up with. One of the things that jumped out to me immediately was the fact that there's a very explicit sex scene between the two main characters, and the entire scene is framed as, I'm trying to get you to marry this man. Here's how he's going to touch you. Here's how he's going to kiss you. Here's how he's going to talk to you. Which is gross and not how queer women have sex and what like it was it was so catered to the male gaze in my opinion it felt like a man's idea of what two women would have sex like yeah um the review the one review that was critical in that way that i thought she just put this really well was from Slate and Laura Miller, a couple of quotes that I just thought like say this better than what I'm trying to say, but I'm not saying it as well. It is also at times as icky as the male lectures it purports to condemn. And but the vilification of men and their desires is not the same thing as a tribute to the eroticism of women. Yeah. And that's the thing is it takes a book that was written by a woman about how gross and awful men can be and turns it into, oh, yeah, men are gross and awful. Now come watch these lesbians have sex. Um, (laughs) It made me laugh when you texted me during the movie and said, this is such a straight men's movie. um, And like, yeah, it's it's just it's uncomfortable. Another little tidbit that I thought was really interesting is one of my roommates happens to be Korean and, you know, watches a lot of movies. And so we've talked a lot about Korean films and stuff. And I was like, hey, I just watched this super weird Korean movie. And she's like, oh, what is it? Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, that movie is like super famous in Korea. By the way, the director had an affair with one of the actresses who is 29 years younger than him. I was like, wow, that explains everything about this movie, actually. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, I could see that. (laughs) Yeah, that does that does um, add a different facet to the uh, view of this movie. But I think that's one of the things that ties into that, that we had kind of the same thing with My Policeman, where in both cases, the sex is, again, framed in terms of how it relates to straight sex. Right. So in this case, it's all like. This is how he'll have sex with you, blah, blah, blah. And in My Policeman, it was a little bit more subtle, but it was still very much present where there are scenes where the two men have sex and then there are also scenes where the man and the woman have sex. And the way it's framed and the way it's sort of filmed is drawing a really direct comparison between them and like sort of contrasting them. And although it's a little bit different in terms of like, oh, look how much more fulfilling he finds having sex with his boyfriend, it's still fundamentally 
in both cases, framing them as here is how it relates to heterosexuality. Yeah. This was my question. So we watched The Handmaiden and we're like, oh, this is like this, these two women and this is like such a male fantasy. Did you feel the same way watching My Policeman? Like, oh, is this just a straight women's movie? Are we just watching these two like well-built men together and that's like supposed to be like for women? Or do you feel like it's different? I would like to hear a queer man's perspective on my policeman, because I'm not sure that I am going to necessarily pick up on it the same way as I tend to pick up on those things with women. That makes sense. Um, I do think that there is an added dimension when it comes to this question with queer men as opposed to queer women. I think in a lot of cases, the uh, the straight male gaze directed at queer women is very purely sexual. It's, I find the idea of two women having sex hot. And I think there's certainly an element of that with straight women watching queer men. I think there also tends to be bit more of an emotional element when it comes to straight women watching queer men. And I'm not saying that that necessarily makes it not problematic for straight women to treat queer men as, you know, this is a commodity designed for my gratification and pleasure. But I do think there are some more layers there that um, that are sort of tied up in straight women's desire for emotional connection and equality and absence of power dynamics yeah. that isn't necessarily quite the same as when it comes to queer women. I would agree with that. I mean, as a straight woman watching straight love stories, you know, it's always the this guy is like really tough. He's really hot. But like the moment when the woman falls in love with him is when she sees his vulnerability or like he's going through something and you know like that tends to be what sets him apart from like the other good looking men is like this one has a more developed um emotional character because i think women like to see that and so that makes sense to me that there's like that extra layer watching two men in a story in a love story that you're getting to see that sort of more emotional, vulnerable side that mm. men have been really, I think, conditioned to not show. But that's odd considering the lengths that men will go through to attract women when all they really have to do is like just be nice and sensitive. And that's going to go a long way. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's definitely kind of one of the distinctions. And I mean, again, like we talked about, it's it's very much... I think, portrayed through the lens of a straight woman. So I do think a a similar problem exists with the two movies. I think maybe the the way gender plays a role in our perceptions of couples of a different gender from us who are the same gender. (laughs) Um, it's, It's heavily influenced by gender roles as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, an interesting an interesting thing is that I noticed because Amazon's got this funky little intro it has for its like Amazon originals. These movies are both Amazon originals. I don't know what that says. Amazon, maybe you need to up your game a little bit. I don't know if I can recommend The Handmaiden. 
I don't, it's like I said, beautifully filmed. It's creatively, I think, very well made. You know, it is just grooming. He was just grooming her. It's just that no one says it because it's heterosexual. If you are sensitive to depictions of the exploitation of women, this is going to be a really disturbing film for you. Yeah. So let's see. Content warning for suicidal ideation, um, attempted rape, exploitation of women and children, explicit language, explicit sex. Am I missing anything? (laughs) Topping off of fingers. Right. Although this apparently is, quote, notably less violent than the director's usual stuff. So, (laughs) which there was not a ton of actual violence, but what there was was it was just sort upsetting. of steeped in implicit violence. Yeah, I think that's true. And like sexual violence, if you consider that that can go way beyond actions, but like words and like forcing people into uncomfortable situations. Like there's a mm-hmm. lot of sexual violence from in that framing. So mm-hmm. tread carefully with this movie is the the final word on that. Um, what next? Operation Hyacinth. So this is a 2021 Polish film about an operation carried out by the Polish communist police from 1985 to 1987, where they tried to create a database of all Polish homosexuals and people who are in touch with them. I didn't realize when we watched it how recent this movie was, but it seems very timely considering that currently a European rights organization has listed Poland as the worst country in the European Union to be LGBTQ+. Same-sex marriages are not recognized. Gay couples cannot adopt children. Some municipalities have called themselves, quote, LGBT-free zones, which has no real legal standing, but obviously open people up to hate crimes. So, yeah, PSA, there's a reason that democratic backsliding and increased anti-LGBTQ sentiment are closely associated. Poland is also one of the countries that has been having a massive increase in um, extreme right-wing nationalism and general, again, democratic backsliding. And they're very closely linked. And that's probably an entire episode right there. (laughs) Probably. So that is the basis for this film. It took me a while to get into, and then I was really into it and enjoying it. And then the ending, I felt, just left me like, wait, what? It was bleak. Definitely gay trauma in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably found it the most affecting of all of the movies that we watched. It was, yeah, definitely hard to watch. There were elements that were very difficult to watch. I do think one thing that sort of made it stand apart from a lot of them was definitely queer trauma, yes, but also there were genuine elements of joy and love. You know, you saw the main character, whose name I definitely remember, but I'm just not saying, you saw the main character go to this party at his boyfriend's house and, you know, ski down the stairs for some reason. But right there, like dancing and laughing and sort of finding this whole community. And so that I think is something that made this one stand out to me was that there was queer trauma, but also queer, queer joy. Yeah. And it's interesting. There are some parallels with my policeman, right? Like this main character was part of the Polish police Mm -hmm. and also was engaged to a woman. So I guess we also have that element of how it was affecting a woman, but I didn't feel like it was as central a part of the story. 
Yeah, that wasn't like the be all end all of the movie, right? She sort of got set aside. Like her relationship with him is like, okay, that's been wrapped up to an extent. Now we're going to finish up these two men's story. Yeah. Um, Another thing that I think I liked better than my policeman was that there was much more accountability, I think. I don't think that in my policeman, he ever really had to face the fact that I am part of an institution that is systematically oppressing gay men. And like, to be honest, there was a line in there where his boyfriend's like, oh, there was this man, Michael, who I was in love with for and I was with him for five years. And then he got beaten to death by a gang of thugs. And I legitimately thought it was going to come out that, oh, he was beaten to death by the police. And so now you have to come to terms with the fact that you're part of this institution. And then that just never happened. And I think that um, Operation Hyacinth did a much better job of like, I am complicit in this. I am hurting people. I have to make the choice to step away from this. Yeah. Do you think any of that has to do with the time when it took place? My policeman during the 50s, which was such a... Like, I thought the way that Harry Styles' character handled so much of that was such the, like, stereotypical 50s husband that when his wife would say, like, is this true? Is there something going on with you too? And he would just be like, are you having dirty thoughts? You need to put that stuff out of your head and move on. You know, it was very like mansplainy and like, we're just not going to- Wrap it up in a box and don't talk about it. Yeah. There was a lot of like, we will not speak of this again because I said so. As opposed to this movie taking place in the 80s after a lot of social changes had happened in a lot of places where people were more aware of, you know, after- Vietnam and all of, and I know that's an American, particularly like American effect, but that stuff ripples all over the world. There were a lot of more social awareness, I guess, is what I'm saying in the 80s than there would have been yeah. in the 50s. Do you think that there's any impact that would have had on his being a more evolved person, I guess? If this had been an American made film, I would say that would track, but I, because I don't think that that same effect was necessarily happening. It's a Soviet country where, I mean, people were effectively cut off from Western influence in this time period. Yeah, that's um, a good point. And I think that Polish filmmakers would be conscious enough of that not to sort of apply American historical periods onto Soviet Poland. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I, it was a good movie worth watching for sure although depressing. And like I said, I just, I wanted more information at the end. I wanted somebody to like, tell me it was going to be okay. I have decided that I am writing an elaborate sequel in my head where they, they escape over the border and then plan a whole heist to break people out of prison. And it's very dramatic. I do love a gay heist movie. (laughs) Who doesn't? That sounds amazing. I think you should do that. (laughs) All right. This one was made in the early eighties. Takes place in the 30s, another country. (laughs) If you've listened to the podcast before, you know that Sienna has given me a hard time for like not when I first saw Dead Poet Society at the age of 12 or whatever, recognizing any queer coding in it. So we have this like whole back and forth where Sienna is always informing me, yes, Dead Poet Society is so gay. It's not that you didn't understand that it was gay when you were 12 it's that we went back and watched it when you were 40 something and you were like what are you talking about it's not gay i don't understand 
see it. Just you still see it. You like already internalized the story when you first watched it, right? And then somebody points out a different element and you're like, well, I didn't get that, but okay, I can see that. It was more like that. Anyway, I watched another country and texted Sienna and said, it was like Dead Poet Society, but gay, just to like push buttons, basically. And it really is. Prestigious British boarding school in the 1930s. Um, it's based very loosely <clears throat> off the early life of Guy Burgess, who grew up in this setting, but then ended up being a spy for Russia or the Soviet Union, I guess, at that time, right? I thought it was really interesting how flamboyantly gay this character was, given the setting of the 1930s. And how, I don't know, there were some interest, there were some really interesting elements in this movie, I thought, of like how we always picture that setting being very like people are shocked by these relationships. But it was very much like, okay, everybody knows this is happening. And he was the only one being like really open about, yeah, I'm gay and these are the guys I'm attracted to. But it was fascinating that it was just like, very known, but at the same time, like we know this is happening, but if we catch you, we're going to punish you really harshly for it. Yeah. Well, and then there's another element also of it being sort of tolerated as long as it's accepted that it's a phase and that it's not mm. like a real meaningful relationship, which I think I have repeatedly heard, you know, was a pretty, pretty regular part of boarding schools as it was kind of understood that, okay, you're going to experiment because it's a same-sex boarding school, blah, blah, but it's not a real relationship. And as soon as you start treating it like it's a real relationship, then that's when it becomes a problem. Which he had that conversation with his best friend in this movie a couple of times where his friend would be like, it's just a phase. No, it's not. This is, I can't change. This is how I am. But... One of the first scenes in the movie shows two boys being caught in the gym locker room. And then one of them um, hangs himself in the chapel as he's awaiting discipline for what happened, which is pretty traumatic. That being said, then I thought there was a lot of levity and some very sweet moments in the story. It wasn't all just like dark and gloomy. I actually really enjoyed it. But you felt that it didn't quite explain well enough how his experience led to him becoming a spy. Yeah, Which I mean, we had this... I just thought, like I said, it was very loosely based on his story. So a lot of this was just fictionalized. But like his entire relationship that plays a big role in this movie, I don't, I have no idea like how, if that was based on anything actual. But his um, disillusionment with the kind of school politics and like working his way into power positions and like the school leadership organization. I think the implication was that like that was part of what led him to like, I've had it with this whole society and I feel no loyalty to you guys, but we both agreed it felt a little rushed. There was more that needed to be fleshed out there. Right. It's like, it felt like a first step, but it didn't feel like, it sort of felt like if you've read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, it felt like his experience with, you know, his college and being like, oh, wow, this is just a hot mess and the entire system is is still set up to work against me. 
But that doesn't mean that you immediately jump to, I am now going to be a spy for Russia. And it would have been one thing if it hadn't sort of used this framing device of a journalist talking to him about like, well, why did you defect to Russia? Like, what made you not feel any loyalty to your country? But because it used that framing device, I was expecting like, we're going to see like what it is that makes this happen. And it felt like we saw maybe a third of that journey. Yeah. Agreed. I was really like sort of surprised when it ended because I was like, wait, if this were made now, I think it would be like a TV show Mm. and it would probably be much more effective because they would have the time to tell the entire story. So there were a lot of unanswered questions. Well, and the really annoying thing to me was that his boyfriend just flat out disappeared, like no wrap up there. It was like he only served as a plot device to explain why he behaved the way that he did at the very end and there and then that was it and he he really just got the marvel girlfriend treatment yeah it, well, i mean i think it was just understood that like okay we will never speak again because he doesn't want him to get in trouble maybe but like it needed a little closure having been yeah. sort of a central part from the opening scene his attraction to this guy was like pretty central to the story mm-hmm. I don't know, gay trauma wise, what do you, do you think this falls into like an old formula? Do you think this is an, a different take? Well, you know, what's interesting is that it's, it's from the eighties, right? So if it were to be a formula, it would almost be setting the formula, right? It would be determining that formula. And I think to an extent, yes. Although I suppose of all of them, it felt the least Chromatic to me, though, that could just be because it didn't have the room to explore emotions as much and to explore the impact on everybody. Um, I mean, a gay kid hanging himself at the very beginning of the movie is pretty traumatic, but it it felt like maybe that element also wasn't explored as fully as it could be could have been. Yeah. I don't know. So I think an interesting thing as well that I think has sort of been alluded to or hinted at a few times throughout this conversation is that this is a movie from the 80s and it's explicitly queer and explicitly about queerness and the main queer character isn't a joke or a side bit or anything like like he is the main character and it is about his journey and I think a lot of times We tend to make the excuse, whether it's in the media that is created in a time period or media that is created about a time period, that, well, that's how things were back then. That's how people talked. People didn't communicate. And that's how people treated queerness. When in reality, there are all of these stories, you know, there are people living fulfilling, meaningful queer lives. There are people having happy stories and funny stories and all of these different things going on that aren't traumatic, that don't have to be traumatic, that maybe there's an element of, oh, we have to keep this a secret, but that's not the main story of your life. And so I think it's it's very frustrating for me to see the excuse of, well, it's just how that time period worked. Because for straight people, maybe, but there are also there were also always queer people saying we should have rights. We shouldn't have to live like this. I am going to choose to have a happy life. I am going to communicate with my partners. I am 
going to find a girlfriend who is willing to marry me so that I can be safe, but not lead her on into thinking it's a real romantic relationship. And it's very frustrating to me that we don't see those relationships depicted on screen and that it's always just, oh, everything was terrible. Everything was traumatic. Watch me die. Yeah. Again, like this is that is telling gay stories through a straight lens. Mm -hmm. This movie did not have a long suffering girlfriend or wife. I actually don't remember a single (laughs) woman in this. Oh, no. There was the mom. Yeah, that's right. So but anyway, it had that. It was not. I, I liked it. I would recommend this one. Yeah, I mean, I think it it really shows that you can create meaningful stories in any time period under any circumstance and that meaningful queer stories could exist under, under in any time under any circumstance. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I was getting at when I said I was surprised at how open he was that just we don't see that portrayal very often in a movie made at that time or a movie that took place in the 30s, we don't often see a character that's openly gay and everyone around him just kind of accepts it. And it's not like still like a well-liked guy. And, you know, it was not like a defining characteristic that was a source of constant angst, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a fresh perspective, even though it's an older movie. Mm -hmm. Felt like a fresh perspective. Our last one that we are going to talk about is The Danish Girl which is a pretty recent movie. So much, so much to talk about. And I think a funny little story about this movie is that I was sitting there bawling my eyes out when you texted me and said, there is so much unnecessary drama here. So we were obviously impacted differently emotionally by this movie. It's based, again, very loosely on a real person. Interesting thing about this, all of these movies, every single one of them is like loosely based on another book or another or another play, loosely based on someone's real life. Like every single one of them. Yeah. It's really funny. Yeah. And so this story is is based on a Danish artist who is married to a woman who is also an artist and decides to transition that the, you know, um, true identity is female and so becomes Lily and her wife stays by her side through most of this. I think this one also has that element of a lot of it being portrayed through her eyes and how it's affecting her, which if I'm completely honest as a straight cisgender woman watching that, like I was emotionally impacted by that because I could see her struggle. But I think part of that was Part of her struggle was unnecessary. And maybe this is what you were saying. There was unnecessary drama in that Lily's experience was portrayed in such a uh, such an unhealthy way. It literally was treated like split personality disorder or something. It was treated like Lily was not just the character's true self, but another person who is coming to visit for a little while. Yeah. That was really weird. And I have no idea if any of that is really based on like true accounts or not. If if Lily ever expressed that in any way, it was weird because so much of Gerda, the wife's trauma, I guess, was based on like the person that she loved was no longer there, which Mm -hmm. which to me was particularly horrible to watch because, I mean, that's a thing that trans people now have to deal with. 
is, you know, parents and loved ones being like, oh, my son is dead. Like, no, you never had a son. This is your daughter who is alive right here in front of you. And you're mourning a son who never existed. Do you think this is just like a random thought that popped into my head? Do you think the term dead name is problematic from that perspective? Dead name, if if you don't know, is like when people transition and change their name, the name they used to go by is referred to as their dead name. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point. I have always viewed it as more like the name is dead or this sort of persona, this kind of lie is dead. But I can kind of see how it could external perspective contribute to that narrative. Because it is um, like it feels like that person is gone, which is exactly what is not supposed to be projected. (laughs) I've always preferred the term old name, but I do know a lot of trans people use the term dead name, um, I think, because it feels, again, fulfilling in terms of I no longer have to pretend to be this person. Right. Um, But yeah, I see. I definitely see your point. That's a whole different tangent, but um. (laughs) (laughs) which we often find ourselves drifting into tangents. I did find it very interesting that Gerda was apparently, allegedly a lesbian. So to your point, like Lily's transition should not have affected the relationship in that way. But I do think the problematic aspect of it being like an entire personality change was sort of the reason it didn't work rather than the gender issue. Yeah, well, it was weird and certainly it can be that when you transition you can learn new things about yourself your sexuality your personality that from an external point of view might look like wow this is a completely different person when in reality you're just sort of learning more about yourself and finally feeling open to behave in the ways that you weren't allowed to behave before that being said My issue with the way this movie handled it was that it didn't feel like it was unpacking any of that. It didn't feel like it was nodding to that. It more felt that it wasn't considering it and was using Lily's gender identity as a sort of sloppy way of saying, this is where all of her problems come from. And this is where all of her life problems and relationship problems come from, which is not inherently true for any trans person. And it felt like there were also elements that the movie just did not even consider. Like, it did not consider the fact that Lily and Gerda could have gone on to to have a happy, meaningful, fulfilling relationship. There are definitely transgender women who come out And are like, look, I have been not living honestly, and I don't feel like this is a good relationship for us to be in anymore. And I feel like I need space to explore who I am independently. And that's fine. And that's perfectly healthy. But none of that was explored or considered. It felt like it was just, ah, I am a woman. Therefore, this relationship cannot work. Yeah. Which, like, transgender lesbians exist. Well, and also what you said, like that it was portrayed as a mental illness. And that was a big part of why it couldn't work was because 
Lily's transgenderism was like such emotional baggage. Yeah, all of a sudden it was like Gerda went from being a spouse and a lover to a caretaker. Yeah. Yeah, there was just a lot of maybe it's unnecessary drama, like you said. (laughs) I was still very emotionally impacted by it. But I just think that they had such a nice, healthy, like their relationship before her transition was genuinely really sweet and seemed very healthy. Like they communicated with each other. They supported each other. And then the fact that that just disappeared because she was trans, that doesn't make any sense. See, it would be interesting to know what really, how their split actually played out Mm. in real life. So Lily was one of the first people to undergo sex reassignment surgery. The real Lily actually underwent four different surgeries. So in the movie... I guess if you do any research, you kind of know how it all ends. So in the movie, Lily dies after one of these procedures. So in reality, the last surgery was to implant a transplanted uterus because Lily was hoping to maybe be able to have children with her fiance and her body rejected the uterus, which led to heart failure. And that was how she died in real life. In the movie, it was that like, She was in such a hurry to like get through all of this that to make the transition complete that she had surgeries too close together. And that was what killed her, that her body wasn't ready. Right. So that very, very interesting, (laughs) very different. I don't know. Very different uh, cause of death, I guess. It's quite fascinating to me, actually, that they would remove that. Because there's a scene in the movie where she is talking to another woman at this, this like healthcare facility where she says, where the woman's like, oh, are you pregnant? She's like, no, I'm having a surgery to cure something that's wrong with me. And the woman's like, oh, will you be able to have children afterwards? And she's like, you know, I don't know. And I'm like, no, that's not how that works. Yeah, I know. I was like, (laughs) surely you know. So it's it's weird that they would remove the fact that she was trying to have a uterus implanted because that actually seems completely in line with the character in the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I had the same thought when she said that, like, that's what? But <laughs> I mean, see, like, it actually is true to the character in real life. We just didn't know that. So I don't know. I read that there was a lot of, there were like a lot of different people cast as these parts, like, cast kept changing and there were like filming complications and they ended up having to cut a bunch of stuff. So who knows how much more they wanted to put in there than they actually did. I don't know. Yeah. Well, because I also, one of my issues was that it's, you know, in, in the current environment where people are like, oh, transgender healthcare is so terrible and it's going to kill our children and blah, blah. And so, you know, having it be like, and then she was in too much of a hurry to get healthcare, and so then she died. Like that's that's kind of crappy. And so to me, having we are trying to continue along this journey because of something that it feels more deliberate. And sure, it's still an experimental surgery because that is how surgeries are developed, right? But it feels much more deliberate than I'm going to go do the surgery as fast as I can because I can't wait. Like that feels like the kind of rhetoric that is like, see, kids are just rushing into the. Yeah, and it sort of fit that idea that Lily was just this, like, really unstable person. Mm-hmm. Rather than this is a very deliberate plan, experimental perhaps, but a deliberate plan to, like, live this dream that I have of being able to bear children. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, you know, being aware, right. That, I mean, it almost, it almost treated her as though she was incapable of making kind of decisions under informed consent. Yeah. Right. Because of that idea of like instability. Yep. And like, she's, she's, she's delusional. She thinks that she's going to be able to have children after this, as opposed to, yes, I understand that there's a risk to this procedure. I would like to be able to have children. And so let's go ahead and go along with it. Yeah. They did Lily wrong is the bottom line. I thought the acting was incredible, which is actually going to tie into our topic for next time, which is whether it is okay for straight and cisgender actors to play gay or transgender roles. It opens a really interesting question. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, the character Lily was played by Eddie Redmayne, who obviously is a cisgender man who doesn't make a very attractive woman, but, um, you know, obviously does not have that lived experience and is sort of putting on a transgender identity as opposed to something that he has actually lived, which aside from the questions of um, trying on people's identities and taking roles from people who actually have that identity, also I think is a concern because it furthers the idea that trans women are actually just men playing dress up. Yeah. So as we are closing things up, Let's just talk about why it matters to talk about these movies that are so imbued with trauma in a historical setting, because we've talked a lot about them and we've talked about, you know, how traumatic they are and how balanced that trauma is with joy, et cetera. But I'm sure some of you are wondering, okay, but like, why does it matter? There are lots of sad movies out there. Why why does it specifically matter to be talking about queer ones? And to me, it's kind of funny. I actually happen to love a good, sad movie. I kind of like things that are bummers. I like drama and angst when it's when it's necessary. Specifically, I don't like unnecessary drama. Please communicate. But I love a good gay tragedy. It's 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 combining gay with tragedy. Two of my favorite things in media, right? But it's also kind of problematic because we didn't have to be like what are good gay tragic movies that are also period films. All we had to do to find these movies was Google queer period films. Because as I sort of touched on earlier, queerness in in history is treated as something that must have been inherently always tragic and something that always had to be kept hidden and treated as this dirty little secret and must have made people's lives so terrible and miserable. When in reality, that's not true at all. I mean, I was tell- I was just saying the other night, like, where are all the movies about lavender marriages, which is when a gay man and a lesbian would get married and then just have their own relationships. But, you know, they could have like a projected, you know, no- quote unquote, normal heterosexual lifestyle. And then they could get away with whatever they wanted. And that's a thing that existed in history. And there are loads of places where, you know, third genders were very normalized in society. And there are little pockets of queerness that have existed throughout history. And we don't see movies about those. We only see movies about the poor gays who had to stay so sad and hidden. Um, Not only is that historically inaccurate, but for queer people who are just discovering their identity, it's also very problematic to be only showing the bad things that can happen and the risks of your quote unquote lifestyle. And 
yes, you know, sometimes you just want to curl up and watch a sad movie and cry. But as queer people, we also have the right to find a movie that will make us laugh and will make us happy. And straight people get to do that. There are loads of historical comedies about heterosexual people. And so the fact that those are so few and far between for queer people is not only, again, historically inaccurate, but it also sets queer people up for trauma and failure and unhappiness. What we see in media uh, reinforces, it, it creates a cycle of how we behave and how we see ourselves in real life. That's very well said. <clears throat> We're really interested in other people's perspective on this. So let us know. And on these hot summer days, if you need an excuse to sit in the air conditioning and watch some movies, please do use as your excuse that queer kid straight mom would love to hear your perspective on some of these things that we've talked about from these films. And like we said, next time we are going to discuss straight actors in queer roles and whether that's okay, why it is or isn't okay. Um, maybe talk about some examples. So please join us for that. Take care. Stay cool. We'll catch you next time. Bye. If you found this podcast helpful, interesting, or just mildly amusing, please consider rating and reviewing us on your podcasting platform of choice. It really helps us to get the word out there and spread this information as far as we can. And as always, check out our website at QueerKidsStraightMom.com or visit us on Facebook, QueerKidsStraightMom, Instagram at QueerKid.StraightMom or Twitter at QueerKidSTR, the number eight mom. And if you're feeling especially generous, please consider joining our Patreon by searching Queer Kids Straight Mom. It helps us fund this podcast.